Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Perringer. So we're going to look at Luke 10 today. Now, I'm not a marketing expert. I'm not good at marketing, but I do know that marketers, you know, they try and come up with concepts and jingles and commercials and sayings and songs and logos and whatever that will that will, will capture the eyes and the ears and are going to be easily remembered so that the product stands out and people think of them when they have a particular need. Now, if the marketing does it right, you are just going to remember those sayings and jingles and, and things like that. And what, what's so funny is it actually does work because I can remember commercials from when I was a kid. Now, yeah, there actually was TV when I was a kid. Can you, can you believe that? And there, there were commercials. And, and they, I actually rem- remember them. So if you're old like me, you probably remember that Kelgon is an ancient Chinese secret. You're probably going to remember that you're not supposed to squeeze the Charmin. You're probably going to remember that Whisk takes, ring, takes away the ring around the collar. You're going to remember that only you can prevent forest fires. You're going to remember that relief is spelled R-O-L-A-I-D-S. And all the young people are looking at me like, say, what? But I, I hear you people my age, you, you remember, yes. Well, one set of commercials that might be very memorable today to me are some of the State Farm commercials. Now, you know, I might be a little bit partial to the State Farm commercials because Green Bay Packer quarterback MVP, by the way, Aaron Rodgers, he's in several of those. You know, he introduced us to the discount double check kind of thing. Now, we, do, we also remember that, uh, you know, Jake from State Farm, he wears khakis. Uh, we, we remember that. But you know, you know what? For years, they've been using kind of the same phrase and kind of the same jingle. Right? And even if they, they, they might not necessarily always say it in their commercials, but it's always there. You can finish it for me. Like a good neighbor. Yeah, good job. <laughs> See, it works. <laughs> I have to write State Farm. You did really good marketing. Everybody rem- remembers that. You know, a lot of the, the newer commercials, uh, it, it's uh, the people uh, you know, they, they, they get into an accident, and usually, I mean, something really weird happens, and so they, they, they begin singing that jingle, you know, like a good neighbor, and all of a sudden, poof, there's this State Farm agent uh, right there and, and to help them with any problems they have, to meet them in their time of need, to help fix the problems and troubles that uh, they're in. Because they're trying to convey that State Farm and their agents are like a good neighbor because a good neighbor is supposed to be there. And so that might be the claim of State Farm. But Christians are called to be great neighbors as well. Unfortunately, that is very antithetical to the society that we live in now. A society that is so wrapped up in their phones and in their gadgets and in themselves that they're not going to step outside of themselves to help people in their greatest time of need. And I have a confession to make. I do that myself. I've done that recently, and I repent, and I apologize to you as a church for it. 
I have not been a good neighbor. But by the grace of God, I pray that I will be. But it's all over in our society. People not being great neighbors. You know, an example from just a few weeks ago. There was a woman who was being sexually assaulted on the public transit train in Philadelphia. She was being assaulted in the train car, a train car that was full of people, other people there. Now, what did the other passengers in the train do? Did they help the woman and intervene? Nope. Did they call 911? Nope. The other riders in the train held up their cell phones and merely pointed them in the direction of the attack. What in the world? What's wrong with you people? But sadly, like I said, pastors do it. Christians do it. And, and, and so society as a whole, pastors, Christians, have gotten away from what it truly means to love our neighbor. And, 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 and I pray that that changes first with me. Jesus ran into that in his day and age. I mean, it's not necessarily like a new problem where we're not being good neighbors. Jesus ran into some religious leaders, and, and, and they, they were very, you know, the religious leaders of his day were very self-righteous. They justified what they did. They justified themselves for their in action. And, and, and what Jesus uses a parable to, to undercut that, to undermine what they were doing. And, and he teaches that when someone possesses eternal life, it's going to act them to love and act them to act like a true neighbor. Because, you know, truly like a good neighbor, the Christian should be there, right? And so we want to look at the very famous parable. This might be the most famous parable. I think I said last week, was the most famous parable. This week might be the most famous parable as well. But we know them both well. We're going to look in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. If you'll stand in reverence to the reading of God's holy word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, that lawyer, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. 
Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He, the lawyer, said, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. For God in heaven, I just pray that you would take this parable, put it into our hearts, and just remind us at all times, the Holy Spirit, to, to look for those opportunities. They're so easy to miss, and nowadays we seem to be so easily distracted. And so, Lord, help us to focus on these things, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So I just want to talk today about being a neighbor in the biblical sense and what we learn from the passage. And the first thing I want to talk about is that a right perspective is important. We've got, got to look at this situation from the right perspective. So the, this, this man is, a, is an expert in the Mosaic Law. And, and he wants, you know, the, the religious leaders, they don't like Jesus, they're trying to get rid of him or, or you know, do, do whatever. They want to, they, they, he wants to undercut Jesus's teaching and authority. They want to trip Jesus up. They want to make Jesus look like a fool in the eyes of the people. So he thinks, okay, I'm going to ask the, this big question. I mean, this is the question. How do you get saved? How are you saved? How do you have eternal life? How do you get to be with God? And he was hoping, you know, Jesus would say whatever, but something that he could argue against and, and make him look like a fool. But Jesus is, is Jesus. He is God in the flesh. He has all wisdom. And so, I mean, he knows what's going on. So he turns the question back around to him. All right, Mr. Law Expert, what do you think is the answer to that question? Now, strangely enough, the, the, this law expert, this lawyer, he gives an answer and, you know, it's, it's the right answer. Love God and love people. Love your neighbor. And, you know, that at first... We evangelicals might be trip, you know, tripped up over that a little bit, you know. He didn't, he, there's no talk about grace and faith and, and things like that. And, and Jesus agrees with this guy's answer. I mean, he says, if you do this, if you love God, all your heart, mind, soul, strength, everything, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you, you will live. But, you know, we, we hear that. We hear that come out of Jesus' mouth and we're like, wait a minute, time out a second. Nobody can love God like that. And nobody can love their neighbor like that, not in the sinful state that we're in. And that's the point. Jesus is, you know, moving him in that direction. You know, that's why we need Jesus, because we don't do that. We don't love like we should. I mean, and, and so we, we can take what Jesus said and, and also think about the, the, the inverse to that, because if you don't love God 100% with all your mind and heart and strength and soul and all that, and you don't love your neighbor as yourself 100% of the time, then guess what? You do not have life. You do not have life unless 100% of the time you love God and you love people. And no human being has ever done that other than Jesus. Jesus obviously loved God and loved people perfectly. And that's why we're condemned without a Savior, because we don't do that. We need a Savior. And so he, he's pushing this law expert in that way. And so this was supposed to be the time when the law expert did a little self-reflection and thought, 
Okay, he said, if I love God and I love people, I will have life, but I haven't loved God like that, and I haven't loved people like that. I'm in trouble, so what do I do about that? What do I, what do, I do about the fact that I haven't loved God or people like that? You know, because that's the perspective that he needed. But, but the gospel writer says that's not what he did. It says that he tried to justify himself. He wanted to try and prove that he is righteous. His, his perspective was, I, I, I want to prove that I have done or can do what, what Jesus said. He said to love God and love people. I want to prove that I can do that. Of course, now he conveniently skips the first of those commandments he doesn't say anything about loving God he doesn't want to expose himself for not loving God with all his heart soul strength and mind he, he this law expert knew that if he somehow related the question to loving God there probably would be a fault found in his life and so he thought well you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna go to this second commandment because I probably could prove that I have done that yeah right but he tries, and so he's still trying to put Jesus to the test and trip him up, and he wants to justify himself, and so he asks the question, all right, fine, Jesus, who is my neighbor? You say, if I love my neighbor, I will live? Well, who's my neighbor? But, you know, that's what came out of his mouth. But what is he actually asking? What is his actual question? Here's his actual question. What must a person do in order to qualify as a neighbor who is worthy of my love? What category of people are my neighbor that I'm supposed to love them like that? Because in his mind, the answer to his question is, well, I'm supposed to love people who are just like me. My neighbor are, is someone who is just like me. That's my neighbor. And with that kind of answer, he can justify himself. Yeah, I love people just like me. Do it all the time. So I'm in good shape. But, but through the parable, Jesus turns all of this on its head. It's like that's really the wrong question. But with the parable, he, he's turning all this on its head. I mean, first, you notice that he, Jesus for the parable's sake, does not describe the characteristics of the man who left Jerusalem and became a victim. He doesn't say if the man is a Jew or a Gentile. He doesn't say if the man is rich or poor. He doesn't say if the man is handsome or ugly, religious or not. He doesn't describe this man because none of that matters. He's a man. He is someone in the image of God. That's all that matters. Someone who's in the image of God is what makes that person worthy as a neighbor. They are of worth as a neighbor because they're an imager of God. And, and, and so because this person is an imager of God, anyone and everyone is supposed to love him as a neighbor, help him as a neighbor. And then, you know, Jesus, he, he casts the religious leaders as the villains. He casts this Samaritan who is hated by the Jews as the hero and he, he's trying to change the perspective because the, 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 the person who's the victim is, is not the point. 
The point is not who is my neighbor. The question is what do I have to do to be a neighbor? What do I have to do to be a loving neighbor? How can I be a neighbor to everyone around me? So yeah, if you're going to answer the law expert's question, guess what? Everyone's your neighbor. But the more important point is, what are you doing to prove that you are a neighbor? What are you doing to prove you're a neighbor? So you see, the, the law expert, his perspective is self-righteousness. I can do that. I can love people like me. But the right perspective is, it doesn't matter who another person is. What can I do to be a neighbor? And so we see the example of being a neighbor. And so that leads to the second point, the, just the second thing I want to mention. By looking at this neighbor, we first see that love is sacrifice. Love is sacrifice. And so as we, we look at the parable proper, Jesus says that there's this man, he travels down the mountain from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's on a high mountain. He's heading west. He's going toward Jericho, about 17 miles away. And even though the Romans, they ran a pretty tight ship, there were still robbers and things like that. If you traveled alone, things could be treacherous. And so these thieves beat him up, take all his stuff, and leave him for dead. A priest and a Levite who are religious leaders, you know, these are the people who are supposed to be representing God. These are supposed to be the pious, holy people. They do nothing to help the man. Now, yeah, the, uh, scholars, they, they like to get into various debates over a little minutiae. You know, they've kind of, they, 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 they've speculated why the religious leaders went out of their way to avoid the man. Some of them thought that maybe it was because they didn't want to be rich, made ritually unclean by a dead body. But, I mean, there's a few problems with that. First, the guy wasn't dead. Second, they were leaving Jerusalem. They weren't going to Jerusalem, so ritual uncleanness wouldn't have mattered. And third, I mean, the Old Testament makes it clear that God prefers acts of mercy than ritual sacrifice. I mean, God, God said... In Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So that means ritual uncleanness shouldn't have been a motive. But here's the thing. You know, all the, all the scholars, they, they debate that, but when you just look at the parable, Jesus doesn't give a motive of why the religious leaders did what they did. Why? Because it didn't matter. Doesn't matter what their excuses were. There's someone in need. They should have been a neighbor and helped that person out, but they didn't. And that's the problem. That's the problem that points back to me. That's the problem that points back to us. So whatever their reasoning is, whatever our reasoning is, it didn't matter. Doesn't matter. But the bottom line is they, these religious leaders, were unwilling to sacrifice in order to help the other person. They, weren't, they didn't want to sacrifice their time. They didn't want to sacrifice their resources. They didn't want to be bothered by giving assistance. They did not want to be a neighbor to the man. And this is, and what's so funny is this, is, this goes against the, the very scriptures that they hold dear, that they give lip service to. I mean, you have verses like Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. 
do justice, love kindness. And to fulfill those, that requires sacrifice. Sacrifice of time, sacrifice of resources, sacrifice of plans. But the religious leaders couldn't be bothered. The religious leaders didn't want to be bothered. But then here comes the, the Samaritan, like some of the most hated people of the Jews. The Samaritan sees a man in need, and it says that he has compassion. Again, we know nothing about the victim, but it doesn't matter. This Samaritan saw someone who was in need, someone who had deep trouble, and he sprung into action. He didn't just pass by the other side of the street like the religious leaders. He didn't get out his cell phone and point it and took pictures. He stopped and, and helped. Helped, And you know what? We don't, we don't know what this Samaritan was doing. We don't know what kind of timetable he was on. We don't know. You know and the wording doesn't indicate it, whether he was going to Jerusalem or coming from Jerusalem. I mean, the wording indicates that the religious leaders, they were coming down from Jerusalem. The Samaritan, he may have been going to Jerusalem to do some business. He may have been leaving Jerusalem to go home. But either way, he had things to do. He had people to see, but he chose not to ignore the man in need. And stopping and helping may have inconvenienced him, but that didn't matter. And he, he just stopped and helped. And, you know, in our day and age, me and everyone else, it's so easy to get distracted and you, you forget things and you get distracted and you, you're doing this and that. We got to slow down. We got to look and see what's going on around us me most definitely and we had you know the samaritan he had things to do he had tasks to be done but he didn't let, let them let that stop him from having compassion and, and so having compassion and being a neighbor means sacrifice going against your natural inclinations going against you know your flightiness going going against your distractedness and things like that. It also means, you know, you look, it, that's not the only sacrifice that the Samaritan made because it says that he stopped and, and he bound up the wounds of this man. He poured oil and wine on them. Wine was the antiseptic and, and, and oil. It was kind of the bomb, the healing bomb of the day. But, you know, where did those things come from? The victim, he was beat up and stripped. He didn't have anything on him. And so, so the, the Samaritan took of his own wine and his own oil and his own bandages, everything. He took from his own supplies and he took care of the man. And then he let the man ride his animal while he walked the rest of the way. And then he paid for the man's stay in the inn. And then when he was leaving, he gave the innkeeper more money. It says two denarii, which is two days' wages. I mean, think about taking two days of your wages and giving that, you know, donating that for the care of somebody. He used his own supplies and money to make sure that this stranger, who he didn't even know, didn't even know his name, but that didn't matter. He wanted to make sure that this guy was taken care of. And so the Samaritan made personal sacrifices of money and resources and time. And, and, and you know, yeah, it threw his schedule off a bit maybe. But he was willing to make those sacrifices so that the man was taken care of. And so we love our neighbor as ourselves, how we would want to be treated. And so Jesus, you know, here's the lesson. Love your neighbors. Love your neighbors as you would want to be loved. 
And that can be so hard and so forgotten uh, at, at times by everyone. But not only did, does Jesus make the point of love is sacrifice, and then the third point you know, I want to make today is that faith is action. Jesus closes this parable, and, and so he asks the law expert, all right, here, I gave you the parable, now who was the neighbor? That's the right perspective. Jesus didn't ask him, okay, now who do you think is your neighbor? His question was, who was the neighbor? Who did the neighboring? The question is, how can I be a neighbor? And so the law expert is backed into a corner. I mean, he's in front of other people. There's a crowd there. He can't deny who the one is that loved his neighbor. He probably wanted to, but he couldn't. And so he said, well, you know, the one who helped the victim. He couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. So, you know, the, that, that guy, that other guy who helped the victim. Jesus said, go and do likewise. And that, I mean, if the religious leaders and, and, and weren't angry before, they were really angry now. Because Jesus is pointing out that this dreaded Samaritan acted more like a believer in God than, you know, those religious people who claimed that they believed in God. I mean, who's the one who believed in God? Who's the one who demonstrated their faith through obedience? Was it the Samaritan? Was it the religious leaders? Obviously, it's the Samaritan. Jesus says, go and do likewise. Your actions will speak more about your faith than your claims do. And, and so now I know we're kind of walking uh, a tightrope here. Because, I mean, okay, first Jesus says that you, if you follow these commands, you're going to live. And, and now Jesus says, go and do likewise. And, and that's how you show your faith, really. I mean, all of that sounds like a works-based salvation, but we know that that can't be what Jesus is teaching because salvation is grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And, and again, I mean, Jesus is trying to get this man to realize, getting us to realize that, I mean, that is the way you're supposed to act, but you don't act that way perfectly all the time. I mean, if you don't love God perfectly and you don't love people perfectly, you don't have life. And since no one can do that, everyone is judged. That's why we need a Savior. Jesus died on the cross because we didn't love God perfectly, because we don't love one another perfectly. That's why Jesus came to this earth. I mean, he, he's teaching us the ideal, but we fall way short of the ideal, and so he saves us. All who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are going to be saved. But when you're saved, you're changed. When you're saved, you are, your heart is changed. You know, as, as Paul says, the old is gone, and then, you know, everything has become new. And so Jesus' brother James wrote an epistle, and he had something to say about this. He had something to say about people who claim they have faith, but they don't have the fruit of faith. Again, not that it, you're going to get it perfectly, but if you have faith, you're going to have the fruit of faith. If your, your claims of faith, like the religious leaders, don't lead to a lifestyle of faith, then your claims of faith don't hold a lot of water because faith will lead to action. What does James say in his epistle? In James 1.22, 
He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Later on, he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? I mean, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is it? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. James in, in James 2.19 he, he makes this, 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 this statement, and it's very stinging. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. You know, the, every day the, the Jews would repeat the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and, and strength. And, and um, you know, and so they say they believe. You know, you, you believe that God is one. Yeah, I say the Shema every day. But James points out, well, yeah, even demons believe. <laughs> demons not just believe, they know. They know the truth and they know enough to shudder. So you, you claim that you have belief. Well, so do the demons. What makes you different from the demons? I mean, at least the demons, they have enough sense to shudder. What makes you different from the demons, James? Is, that's the question behind the statement, so to speak. James 2, 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is, is dead. And so we love our neighbor by putting our faith into action. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but it is not a salvation of grace that is, all, that is a loan because a changed heart and a changed mind leads to changed attitudes and changed actions toward people. We don't, we don't get it perfectly. I'm learning every day that I, I, man, am I not getting it. I'm just glad I have a Savior. I mean, there's, there's a Savior that cleanses from sin, and I need it. I desperately need it. But you know what? By God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, every day love God more and every day love others more. Being a better neighbor. The question isn't who's my, who's my neighbor. I guess the question is whose neighbor am I? And I need to be a better neighbor and I think we all do as well. You know, one of my favorite shows as a kid was Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers had a neighborhood. <laughs> Mr. Rogers was looking for neighbors all over the place. He was asking everyone, won't you be my neighbor? I mean, come on. Won't you be his neighbor? As far as Mr. Rogers was concerned, it didn't matter who you are, what you were like, what traits you had, you're, you're his neighbor. You're going to be his neighbor. And the thing is, Mr. Rogers, you, you watch the shows, he's going to act like a neighbor, and not only just because it was a show, but Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, was a neighbor to all to, to, to everyone who, who knew him. But he, he, he let it be lived out through his show. You know, there, was th there were little things that he did on his show that nobody would probably notice or realize that, that he was doing it so he could be a neighbor to real-life people, not just the people on his show. He was being a neighbor to the viewers in different ways. Something so simple as just narrating 
his actions as he was doing actions on his show. I mean, something as simple as just narrating the fact that he was feeding his fish was a form of being a neighbor. Because Mr. Rogers received a letter from a five-year-old child, I mean, through his parents, obviously, and this five-year-old child wrote this letter to Mr. Rogers. He said, Dear Mr. Rogers, please say when you are feeding your fish because I worry about them. I can't see if you are feeding them, so please say you are feeding them out loud. This child was blind and listened to Fred Rogers on Mr. Rogers. And so from then on, he would describe his actions as well as do his actions. He would walk up to the fish tank and mention the fact that he was feeding the fish also, also that he could let this one child know, hey, I, I, I hear you, I love you, I want to be your neighbor. You are my neighbor. And I want to be your neighbor. And I want you to know that I heard and I've listened. And I'm taking care of you and I'm taking care of all of the blind children who are listening to my show. You know, one little insignificant act was an act of love toward a neighbor. I'm not a neighbor like that. We all probably could admit that we're not neighbors like that. And so, starting today, let us resolve within ourselves. How can I be a neighbor? Figure out how I can be a neighbor. So, as a church, Let's make it a beautiful day in the neighborhood for everyone around. Hey, might as well, Mr. Rogers started it, we might as well finish it. Let's make it a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Beautiful day in someone's life. Wouldn't it be cool if our community found out that, like a good neighbor, Harvest Baptist is there? We could even sing that, I mean, we could turn that jingle. And maybe not, but. Again, I'm not good at marketing, so. But let's live out the principle. Like a good neighbor, Harvest Baptist is there. And so, Christian, maybe you want to come to the altar and pray that God would help you love your neighbor as yourself. Pray for your staff that we would love our neighbors. But maybe you haven't trusted in Christ. Maybe you haven't believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Without believing in Christ and receiving the power of the Holy Spirit, you're not going to love God and you're not going to love people and, and you're not going to have eternal life and so as we we have our closing song or invitation i'll be up front if you need to believe in jesus christ come i would love to talk to you about believing in christ if you want to come to the altar pray about being a better neighbor please do thanks for listening to the podcast of harvest baptist church for more information visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on facebook instagram or twitter you can also find info on our children's ministry on Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at KidsQuest underscore HBC. Our student ministries on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry and on Instagram at VSM underscore HBC. We welcome you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are located at 8999 Waltrana Highway in Harvest, Alabama. Thanks for listening and God bless.